Hey everyone, welcome back. This is episode 11 and this is a conversation that I was so lucky to have with Krista Shirley. If you are an Orlando local, you know her name already. She's the founder of the Yoga Shala and now the founder and director of Olotita. Um, this conversation is just, it's super special. I, this is the only time that I've ever had like undivided time to just sit and talk with Krista one-on-one and not just be kind of like casual social media friends and colleagues. Um, so I really got a chance to just get to know her as a person and this, her story is so beautiful. It, we get started with the birth of her studio and also the birth of her son. And I won't ruin all the details for you cause you got to hear it from her, but a lifetime of this really extensive, vast teaching experience. I really appreciate how she demystifies the Mysore practice. So if you're interested in Mysore, you definitely want to tune into this episode, um, But she also, and if you follow her on social media, you probably already know this much, but she had this really intense injury recently and approached it the way only a yogi could and only a a scientist's anatomy obsessed yogi could. Um, And it's just a really incredible story. And we wind up at the end with the unfortunate loss of her mother and the dawn of her new space to teach. And the whole story is just so beautiful. I cannot wait for you to hear it from her. And the thing that stuck out to me the most is she was saying that, you know, this is a practice that nobody can take away from you no matter what, even with your injuries, even in a case of, you know, an extreme injury, there's still a lot that you can do and a lot to come back for. So I thought this was a beautiful conversation. I was so thrilled to have it and I hope you enjoy it too. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Body, Mind, Spirit Service Podcast Show. I'm your host, Shay Knight. I'm a yoga teacher, a teacher trainer, a massage therapist, and a wellness entrepreneur coach. And I've been in this industry for over 15 years. So believe me when I tell you, I know that you feel called to serve others with your work. And I also know that sometimes you scream in a pillow, run out of money, feel isolated, and question your career choices. (laughs) Listen, we all do it. So on this show, we're talking about it with our colleagues. We're talking about money, marketing, work-life balance, burnout, side hustling, full-time hustling, and what it takes to keep going, or sometimes to not keep going. Each recording is dedicated to you, wherever and whenever you tune in. I hope you gain a little something to help you on your way. So before we begin, I invite you to take a deep breath, get centered, maybe make a cup of tea, and be present while you listen. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to have you on the show. For those of you listening, my guest today is Krista Shirley, and I've actually only known you through the interwebs for probably 15 years. And so this is our first like face-to-face, albeit via Zoom conversation. And I'm, I'm so excited at the opportunity because I've known you and many of your students um, from a distance. And so I'm excited to dig in and learn more about you. And I know our listeners are as well. Well, I'm really honored that you invited me to come today. So thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. I consider you like an, uh, like a Florida institution. So I know people will have questions and you've made a bit of a comeback lately. And I know you have stories to share. Um, but for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know who you are and hasn't met you yet, can you give us a little bit of a background? Absolutely. Yeah. So I started practicing yoga in 
gosh, 2002, um, at a little, is it literally in a Shtanga yoga leg class at a gym, I fell in love with the Sanskrit and the, you know, the difficulty of the practice. And I very quickly started doing Mysore style with a gentleman here in Winter Park named Ronaldo Liam. He had been to India, I think once at that time. I had three months with this person. He taught me full primary series and then he moved away. And after that, I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have anywhere else to practice. So I was on my own for a really, really long time. I ended up doing some teaching trainings with Manju Joyce in Chicago, doing the centered yoga training in Thailand right after I graduated from college in 2004. And then I started going to India as much as soon as possible. In 2006, I took my first trip there. I was there for 10 months studying with Patabi Joyce and Sharat Swami Joyce and Saraswati. And um, pretty much for every year after that first trip, I would come back to America and work until I'd saved up enough money to get back to India to study. And I always, since the day I found this practice, I felt like it was something magical. I really, really did. I um, I actually had majored in classical studies in anthropology and minored in archaeology. So I'm very fascinated with culture, with history, with traditions. And um, for me personally, this practice just clearly brought everything together in such a perfect way for me. And I love, love, loved it. And I still do. Um, and I remember... After I came back from my first trip from India, um, I was so different and I just wanted to get back there to study. And I literally remember telling my now ex-husband when I was younger, you know, I want to move to a state that has an authorized teacher so I can have, you know, a community and a teacher to guide my practice. And um, that never transitioned to happen. So eventually after enough trips in 2009, Patabi Joyce authorized me level two authorization and basically said, you have to go go home now and open a yoga, a yoga school. And I had been doing some Mysore programs. Again, I would teach them and then I would leave to go to India, come back and start them over again. And um, I came back in 2009 authorized by Patabi Joyce and Sharat. And I remember I was really, I was really kind of scared because I wasn't ready to make commitments like that in my life. I wasn't ready to rent a space. I wasn't ready to really settle down in Orlando. I actually wanted to travel and teach, but there were other things in store for me. And I actually about a day after I signed the lease for the space in Winter Park, which was the first yoga studio that I had, I found out I was pregnant with my son, who's now 12 years old. And so I birthed two things at the same time in birthing the yoga shala and birthing my son. And the yoga shala opened in Winter Park in 2009. Um, the very first small space, actually, literally around the day that Katabi Joyce passed away. And um, I can't express what an incredible experience it was for me to have my yoga shala. So I had the yoga studio, the yoga shala from... 2009, I closed the doors in April of last year for various reasons, which we can get to later. Um, and I, I loved the community that I was able to build. And I loved that I was able, because my shala was mine, I didn't offer other types of yoga. It wasn't, it was a place that you would come and you would really learn the traditional teachings of Ashtanga Yoga Mysore style. And um, such a beautiful platform for me personally to have a place to do my practice, to have a place to raise my son, to have a community of like-minded individuals. And um yeah, so once I opened the shala, it really was a full-time, it became a full-time experience for me, you know, private sessions. I once I um I want to say around 2011, I think I taught my first yoga retreat in Mexico. And then I began doing yearly retreats. I started teaching a lot more workshops beginning in 2011. And I love to travel. So I've always enjoyed putting all of those pieces together. And it's been so nice for me through the years to have my group of local students in Orlando, but get to touch base with and somehow assist or help other programs bringing inspiration or education or knowledge whatever it might be uh, and it seemed to to kind of expand this beautiful global ashtanga community that exists in the world and so i've always loved that and then 
you know, through the years, people would travel to Orlando to take their kids to Disney or something, and they would come pop into the studio. And then eventually I'd find them, I'd see them at a workshop or a retreat. And so um, those people that really do gravitate to this practice and stick with it once the honeymoon phase is over, it's, you have a lifelong community to really tap into. And I love that aspect of this practice. So that's kind of how I got started. Um, but I really did just want to be a student. I really, really did selfishly. I mean, I actually had, I was a Pilates teacher when I found yoga in college. And I remember my first teacher, Ronaldo, told me, one day you will have to teach this practice too deep in yours. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, that is not true at all. And uh, lo and behold, over time, you know, things evolved. One of my, my very first teacher, Karen Brenneman, actually, she was the teacher who taught the classes at the gym nearby. And she left after the summer to go to Edinburgh to, to finish her degree. And that's when I really started working with Ronaldo. But she also helped me understand um, you, you get from this practice what you want from this practice. But I also learned through the years that I don't ever try to change the practice to meet people where they are. But I try to create variations of the asanas, for example, to help them access those postures and work to master them. Um, and I will say through the years, I feel like I've gotten a little softer. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, it was very rigid for me with Guruji. Like, you know, I had to really truly master every single asana before I was giving anything. And I brought that into my teachings, but I do think that over time I was able to do it in such a way to where I could create different variations based on the bodies in front of me and really help everybody access this practice. I'll never forget in 2007, I had my first blind student. And that was so, it was terrifying for me, but then it was so interesting at the same time. And to see this woman who could do this practice and she couldn't see. And then literally two months later, I had a client who had one leg. And I just remember numbers of instances. I remember the first time I had a pregnant woman in my class and I literally sent her away because I was like, I don't know how to help you. I'm, I'm like terrified of you, get away from me. Um, but I've, I've learned through the years. And I remember when I was pregnant with my son, after that, I loved working with pregnant women because I really felt an experiential level of how I could help you access this practice or modify the practice to be able to still do it while you're pregnant or do it while you have a disability or while you're injured. And um, that really has become a passion for me. And I've recently had some of my own struggles. So um, I don't know if you want to go into that yet or not. Yeah, I definitely do want to. I have a few questions that I wanted to sure. circle back to. Um, and this okay. is just so fun for me because again, like I've just, I've known some of your students and I, I, we may have even shared some mutual students, but what you're saying is like, it just, it lights up the other sides of the story. Cause that is how I knew you. Your reputation is, I wouldn't say like, you said you've been softer now. So it's not that I, you know, heard you to be rigid before, but like pure, like sticking to it, you know, honoring the lineage, not watering it down. You know, these are things that I think there's a lot to say for that in the industry yes. more and more and more and more, you know, and a lot of times we shy away from words like mastery because it feels exclusive to people, but there's also a, um, a heritage and a lineage and an origin to it that is, I think, often lost. Yes. You know, at the, at the risk of making anyone feel left out, which of course is not what any of us are trying to do in yoga. But, um, I always, I always admired and respected that from afar. So it's neat to hear your side. I'm like, Oh, this is just like what your students said about you. This is cool. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you would break down for, so in my mind, the people who'll be listening to this, they might be people like us who've been doing this forever. They also might be people who just graduated their first yoga teacher training or, okay. you know, they're, they're thinking about, maybe becoming a teacher. Um, so how would you define for a super beginner, 
the style that is Ashtanga and the Mysore practice? Because I think a lot of people have some variations on what it is. Absolutely. That's a wonderful question. And I will say, first and foremost, the Ashtanga Yoga Mysore method, I think is the safest, most effective way to learn yoga, to practice yoga. When I'm talking about it to people, I explain that Ashtanga Yoga is a specific style of yoga, similar, there are styles like Bikram, Iyengar, Yin, Kundalini, Anyasara, and it goes on and on. So that's a type of yoga. Now, when it comes to the Mysore practice, this is unique to Ashtanga Yoga. As you know, most other styles of yoga are led in nature. So I explain to a lot of students when they come into the Yoga if you are coming to practice Mysore style, it's very much like a private session within a group setting. In the first few classes, you'll be there 30 minutes to an hour. You'll have a lot of my personal attention where I'm going to be teaching the basics of the breath, the bandhas, the dristi, and the sun salutations. And then I'll send you home and bring you back the next day. And we're going to do the same thing over again and add a little bit more. And every time you return to the practice, you're building upon what you started with from the very beginning. So you're creating this incredible foundation. And um, once you've been able to memorize, say, part of the standing, then I'll have you work on it on your own, repeat it to really commit it to memory. And as we get further along in the postures themselves, then my job transitions less to talking at you and more to physically assisting you, taking you deeper into postures, helping you understand things, answer questions. Um, and how that works and how it's possible if there is a room of 10 other students, well, they got the same exact attention when they first started coming to their own personal Mysore style practice with me. So when I have any new students, they're more than fine. They're on their own. They're able to do that guided self-practice with my assistance, with my observation and with my adjustments. Um, and it makes it a really unique environment. I can have a pregnant woman with a 70-year-old man, with a 13-year-old girl, with somebody who's doing half primary versus somebody who's doing third series, all in the same room. And um, I do think it is the hardest way for teachers to teach yoga, but still the most effective way, still the best way. So I used to tell people, I waited tables all through high school and college. And you know, to me, my style classroom is almost like juggling you know, five table section in a restaurant because each person has, they're in a different place in their practice. They have very different needs, very different body mechanics. And, and your job is different for each person no matter what. But again, I love that because I know uh, when I used to teach like classes, people wanted their eyes on me to see what I was doing. I wasn't demonstrating. I was walking around the room. So they had no idea what was happening unless they listened. Uh, but a lot of like classes, you know, the teachers in the front of the room doing her thing or his thing. And students are, A, it's more competitive in nature because you almost have to watch the people around you to see what's going on. And then you start, your monkey mind starts judging yourself or judging that person. And it takes away from the true purpose of yoga. But the most important part of Mysore style, I think, is that accountability piece. Because you there are so many styles of yoga. You can do any style of yoga and get what you're looking for out of it. But if it's, you're someone who really wants a lifestyle practice, then you're going to have to make certain commitments to yourself to commit to a lifestyle practice. And then the onus is on you to really take accountability for your health and wellness by showing up to practice. But that's really all you have to do is show up. You show up, the teacher can guide you until you don't need them, your hand held anymore. And at that point in time, you know, just like we all saw with COVID-19, I think with Ashtanga Yogis, when the, when the shalas closed, people who were really dedicated to their practice still rolled it out at home, even if they didn't want to. And there is, a, I mean, I, I don't like to practice at home. I'm the same way. I want to go to a dedicated space that is dedicated for my practice. And I want to do my practice there. I always have a better practice, but nonetheless, this gives you the ability to do it in your hotel room or in your bedroom or anywhere you want to. 
And it's something that I've always told students, once you learn this practice, it's something no one can ever take from you. And that meant a lot to me because it was taken from me with some injuries I had. And I will get into that later. But I think that what it's intimidating to people because they think in their mind they have to know what they're doing before they walk into class because they hear it self-guided or self-directed or self-paced but it could it's further from the truth a traditional truly traditional MISO program is going to ensure that everyone especially new students gets a lot of attention a lot of instruction to understand how this program works because it is a little bit different so does that help answer that question yeah okay. yeah that's a really that's a really helpful picture um and I did want to ask you too about the honeymoon phase because I've never heard anyone refer to it, but we see it. So in your experience as an instructor for people who are either new to yoga or new to Ashtanga Mysore style, tell, tell us about the honeymoon phase. I so love this theory. I, I went through it personally myself when I first started practicing Ashtanga. Like I said, I did leg classes for maybe two months, loved it then went into a Mysore space and did Mysore for three months before I was on my own. And during that time, for me personally, and I've seen it with students, I, I couldn't get enough. I wanted to practice two times a day. You know, I wanted to do it all the time. I wanted to do it every day. I really, my body, everything changed. I started sleeping differently. I started eating differently. I was really quite addicted to what I was experiencing. But once you get, I always say it's around the three to six month mark of a dedicated, pretty much committed practice of three to six days a week at that three to six month mark, students tend to really come up to this place of, I'm not feeling as euphoric anymore. I'm starting to have a lot of feelings that are coming up. I'm angry today, or I don't want to do this anymore, or I'm, I'm stuck in this pose. So my ego's, you know, getting the best of me. And I just want to go do something different. That's not challenging. There's a billion things that come up, but that's the work of the yoga. And that's where the beginning, it is a honeymoon phase because it feels so good and you're doing such good things for your body and you feel all these endorphins running through you and you're sleeping better and you're maybe losing weight and get more flexibility. But when we get stuck in a place in the posture, whether by three or six months, you're stuck at the Marichi Asanas and you feel like you're never going to get past them or you can't get up in a headstand, a headstand or again, the emotional piece of it, you know, you're in the middle of your yoga asana practice, and then all of a sudden you want to scream or you want to cry. Um, and those unknown emotions coming up really do scare people. So I think it's everybody's story is a little bit different, but everybody goes through a honeymoon phase. And as I said, again, it's either for the emotional side of it or for the physical stuck side of things. Um, and I know for sure that it's the people that push through that honeymoon phase that become lifelong practitioners because, and you'll, and you have, I think we have a couple of them. You know, I think mm -hmm. that we go through phases. I remember years of time when I just did it to do it. I can't say that I, you know, I really, really couldn't wait to get out of bed and get on my, my yoga mat, but I knew, I knew I needed to. And I definitely knew that if I didn't, I would not be a good person that day. So, um, I would, I would say to anybody who's kind of new to yoga, especially if you take on a practice like this, expect that to happen but expect it to happen in a very positive way. Meaning once you get that place where you're starting to struggle a little bit, now you're doing the work. Now you're yeah, now, now the it's work getting is real. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so to yeah. me, I, I jump for joy when that happens with students. And I just try to continue to, you know, provide positive feedback for them and, and be of assistance to them through whatever struggles they're having. Um, and just real quick to top on top of that, you know, when people do get stuck in postures, um, I know for sure, that Patabi Joyce, me. I know for sure that Patabi Joyce really kept me at the practice in certain postures for a long period of time. And not because I couldn't physically do the asanas, but 
there's such an energetic component behind all of these asanas. So if I were to give somebody, say, six poses in a two or three day period of time, um, we we're not, I think that's a disservice as a teacher because I'm not giving you the opportunity to work over a couple of days or a couple of weeks to really get that energetic connection, but also whatever you're supposed to move energetically through that posture. So again, if it's a pent up emotion from 10 years ago that you may not even know exactly what that memory was from, but when you got into Johnny Shoshasana C, boy, did stuff come up. If I gave you C and then A and B of Marichyasana, you're not going to really know the forest from the trees when it comes to what was I experiencing? What am I learning from this posture or what am I ex releasing from this posture? And so to me, that's always been really powerful. That was, you know, I, I mean, Guruji really, 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 he would hold me and hold me and hold me and I'd master these poses. But later did I realize, oh, somehow he knew I didn't have, I had not yet moved the energy that needed to be moved as a result of taking that posture. So I, I, I think that it's powerful in a lot of ways to have that accountability, but also have the teacher to help guide you and sort of get to know you intimately and understand, have they gotten everything they need yet? Nope. Okay. So now that's a really interesting thing because you also train teachers, right? If my memory serves, you trained a number of trainings. So how do you train that skill of knowing like maybe they're physically okay in the pose, but they're not done and they need to stay longer? Well, and that is a hard thing to do. So I um I started, I did my very first uh, Ashtanga apprenticeship. I opened my studio in 2009 and I hired a teacher who had never been to India, never studied with Patabi Joyce. And she was an Ashtanga teacher and she was lovely. But I very quickly found there was a huge discrepancy in what I was teaching in the mornings and mid mornings and what she was teaching in the evenings. And it was creating a lot of difficulty within the student body. So I then began my apprenticeship program whereby I could hire staff to teach in my shala. And, um, I love doing those through the years. People, again, if you talk about if I'm rigid, that would people anybody who's done my program would say that was the hardest thing ever. Um, and we touch on it in training, but the truth is, I think that comes from experience in teaching, but also experience in your practice. So, mm -hmm. you know, I would work a lot with the in the, the apprenticeship programs. Obviously, we cover yoga, asana, pranayama, theory, history, philosophy. And then we spend a lot of time with adjustments. And so during all of the adjustment lectures, as we go through each and every one of the postures, I would try to really reiterate to them that it's not just if somebody's able to do the pose that you move them right along, really observe your students, observe their energy, observe their breathing patterns, observe their, their gaze, observe all of those things and see intuitively begin to understand how to work with each student. Um, and that's really the approach that I took during the apprenticeship programs. But as I said, I think it mostly comes from the experience that you have yourself as a teacher and a student. Um, and nobody's perfect by any means, but uh, I'm just a firm believer that one to two poses, give them a few days and then let them move on, you know, and on the opposite side of that, there are a lot of students, I feel like even more nowadays, I'm, I see that just don't, aren't, they're like happy with where they are. Like, I don't really want any more poses. And so that's <laughs> the same thing where the teacher then has to, I mean, I remember this too. I remember when Guruji gave me a couple of poses and I was like, I don't want those. I literally remember when he finally gave me Karan Devasana and um, I was like, no, I don't want it. <laughs> um, but it's that again, it's that other that's that, that mental piece of it. So as the teacher, you're helping to guide the practice of the students in front of you. And you have to just be very clear of what you're doing and what they need versus what they want. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's really important, especially like you said, for newer teachers to understand that that does come with time and experience. And there's no shortcut to getting time and experience other than not being as good as 
as you are later. You just have to start and you have to teach and you, you will get better and just trust that it gets better and you're doing your best the whole time. I feel like that's super important. It really is. And going back to I, I, when I told you I my first pregnant student, um, I was a really new teacher. I was such a new teacher and I'll never, cause we're still friends to this day. She actually lives in another country now. Um, and I'll never forget it because I literally kicked her out of my class. I was like, I don't know how to work with pregnant women. I'm, I'm totally terrified of you. So as any new teachers out there listening, do the best you can every day, enjoy the process. But I promise you that just like the Ashtanga yoga practice itself, the more that you teach, the better you're going to get at teaching and the more intuitive you're going to feel in that space anyway. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so I do want I do want you to bring us to present day because you've had an eventful couple of years. I have bring us uh, up to speed. So um, in 2016, I moved my yoga shala from Winter Park to College Park in Florida, which is in Orlando, um, and it really changed the dynamics of my my business, my shala. It was a whole new client base. I had to change the structure of pricing and everything. And I really was getting much deeper into doing workshops and retreats. And I I was overwhelmed by all of it, but I really enjoyed it. And fast forward to 2017, uh, Hurricane Irma here in Florida really did some damage to my house and my shala. And I spent 10 hours in the yard, ended up tearing my common extensor tents and tendon and my supraspinatus in my left shoulder. And um, I did tons of PRP, prolotherapy, stem cells acupuncture, all kinds of things, you name it. And it, it didn't get better. It got worse, but I also didn't really take the rest that I needed. I was teaching a lot. My mom was really sick. In 2018, my nephew passed away and um, I just was working way too much and I wasn't letting my body heal. So fast forward to April of 2019, I had a rotator cuff surgery, basic rotator cuff repair surgery um, that went really bad. Uh, it gave me a really nasty infection. It was basically killing me. And I traveled the country to see different shoulder doctors and decided to see a doctor at the Stedman Clinic. And I really, I, I urge anybody listening now, never go there. Um, that surgery severed my nerve, my suprascapular nerve. So if you know anything about the anatomy of the shoulder, the suprascapular nerve runs from C6 vertebrae down through your supraspinatus and infraspinatus. You have four rotator cuff muscles that actually move your shoulder, your glenohumeral joint. So two of mine were killed, um, as well as my mid-trapezius nerve in that surgery, but it went undetected for a year and a half. Um, I actually was gaslighted by every doctor I saw because I told them I thought my nerve was cut and they said, there's no way the nerve can be cut. So I went through a series of several more surgeries, A, to fix muscle damage that was caused by the surgeries before, and then at least two that were pretty much unnecessary because I was misdiagnosed. And fast forward to April of 2020, Nerve injuries are very, very delicate. Um, nerves are the hardest thing in the body to heal. We don't know enough about them. And they regenerate very slowly. They regenerate about a millimeter a day after the initial injury phase is over. So that's important. But also there's a time window for any regeneration. It's 18 months. So at the end of 18 months from the time of a nerve injury, if you've not intervened in some capacity, then you'll never have function in that limb again. So I had a doctor um, from the beginning, early 2020, really watching my nerve because again, nobody was paying any attention to my nerve problem. And um, we did a special nerve MRI to show that there was an issue with the nerve itself. And so I went into a surgery in April of 2020, it was supposed to be a nerve decompression surgery where they go in, they find the nerve, they decompress it, then it flows freely, then you get your function back and life goes on. But uh, my nerve decompression turned to a nerve transfer surgery because when Dr. Zumsteg actually did the procedure, he found that my nerve actually had been severed in my surgery in 2019. And so 
he couldn't leave me like that. And he did what's called a nerve transfer. It was a spinal accessory nerve transfer of my spinal accessory nerve, which powers your trapezius muscle in your back. And he put that into my shoulder in the hopes of giving me some function back in my left shoulder. I then had to wait a whole year because nerves grow very, very slowly. Mm. So we knew a year out from that surgery if I had any regeneration. So at a, almost 12 months out, we did a nerve study and it showed that the infraspinatus, supraspinatus, and trapezius had none of it had regenerated. They were all flaccid and, and gone. Um, and at that point, um, my physical therapist told me to get on disability and start seeing an occupational therapist because he didn't know what to do with me. He couldn't fun he could not help me with this nerve problem. And um that was a real turning point for me because I had already been really struggling with my shala since um, early 2019 when all of these surgeries, I mean, I was pretty much living in a sling from April of 2019 until July or August of 2020, 2020, um, literally living. Due to your practice, what were you able, how did you practice? So, so I really couldn't practice. I, you know, that, that's where, when I, I teach people all these years that once you learn this practice, no one can take it from you. Well, I don't say that quite as often anymore, but still no one can take it from you. Um, but I did lose my asana practice. I pretty much completely lost my asana practice because I had a, I had a limb, literally my left limb just hung by a side. Um, so the muscle up here, these muscles, and then all the rotator cuff muscles back here, they still don't work on me, but I'll get to that in a minute. I So I basically from around September of 2019, right before that surgery was my last real yoga practice, the nerve was severed September. I couldn't use the limb. So I, I would try to get to my mat. I would try to do stuff, but it was so painful. It was such dysfunction. I was doing more harm than good for a long time. Um, I tried to go really deeper into my meditation, which I've always had a beautiful and sustainable meditation practice. But as a result of all of these muscles dying on me, my spine, my cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine herniated at different places. So everything was compounding and getting a lot worse to the point where I couldn't even sit up to meditate anymore. And I got into a very dark place. But during all of that, you know, we had COVID. I remember when COVID hit, I'll never forget this. I think I was already six months into my sort of isolation phase when COVID hit. And at that time, pretty much from September on, I was barely at the shawl. I was in and out when I could be. I was often in a sling. I wasn't able to adjust students. And so a lot of my staff was holding space in the shawl, but the shawl was getting you know, lower attendance and lower attendance because my presence wasn't there. And then COVID hit. And, um, you know, I look back and I almost wish I had let go of it then because I held on to the shala for a year and it caused a lot more heartache for me in so many different ways. But people were afraid to come even when we reopened and I was there by myself in a sling. I remember May, and 20, May of 2020 um, coming in to teach class and like nobody wanted to come because they were still terrified of COVID even though we reopened again. And the sequence of events transpired. So I didn't have a yoga asana practice. I walked every day. I would walk for hours every day and I would make that my asana practice. And believe me, the mind bending aspects of it all. My dad did commit suicide when I was a little girl. And I've had a lot of trauma and tragedy in my life. And I'll say, I say this to say that when I was little, after my dad passed away, my mom, you know, took us to therapist and they put us on antidepressants and those things made me feel worse. And so when I found yoga, when I found yoga, I found my natural antidepressant. I found my anti-anxiety. I found a solution to any sort of distress that I felt emotionally. It was the place that I went. It was my, it was my, it was my magic space, you know? And um, to, have to have that taken away, it was hard for me to handle a lot. And in April, when my doctor dismissed me from care, 
I had to make the decision to close the Shala because I just physically could not afford to even try to keep it alive anymore. But I also knew I had held this hope for so long. I mean, going on over two years at this point that when I get better, I'm going to get everything back the way it was before. And um, the when I get better just kept lingering. When I get better, when I get better, when I get better. And so in April of 21, I closed the studio and I, um, I really went back to the basics. I actually forced myself to lie down meditating every day. And um, I've been following Dr. Joe Dispenza. If anybody out there has not heard of him, please look him up. I really do love his perspective on meditation. I think it really brings a lot of science into it to help demystify the meditation practice. But also, I think it helps demystify the Ashtanga yoga practice a little bit too. Um, But I was doing a lot of his meditations and I was doing them laying down. And I would really work to visualize doing my yoga practice in my head. So every day when my first, and I was doing two meditations a day, two 45 minutes to an hour long meditations every day for a while, because it's all I had, that and walking, that was what I had to make my yoga practice. And um, what my first morning meditation every morning, I would do my asana practice in my head. And after enough time went by, I began blindfolding myself and standing at the top of my mat, because it's, I can't explain to someone how it feels to, to know what to do with your limb but your body, you're telling your brain to move that limb and nothing is happening. So I would blindfold myself, start with my hands together, clasp like this, take them overhead, fold forward. And I literally began doing yoga again like that with missing four muscles in my body. Around the same time, I was able to align with a very out out of the box physical therapist. He's a chiropractor, a PT and all kinds of other stuff, really quirky guy. And he was willing to do with me what no one else would, which was I done. I I feel like I should have a PhD in anatomy and nerves specifically these days. But I knew that the science doesn't understand it, but there is a way for the brain to create different neural connections to create the function that you want, even if that muscle is not viable or that nerve isn't viable. And so, this particular PT and I began to work together three times a week in April of 2021. Um, I still see him once or twice a week, but I'm working with a different PT now because I got to a point that I had enough function through the work with him where I can go back to see a normal physical therapist. And when I say normal, yeah. you know, most PT offices work with a lot of different injuries, but again, nerve injuries are very, very unique and specific. And without the nerve having fasciculation or function, you can't get that muscle to move or that limb to move. So most physical therapists are really unable to assist in cases like that. Mm-hmm. And um, So yeah, so last year, I want to say May, June, July, I started doing like a little bit of teaching again, um, like three days a month kind of thing. And then was just dipping my toe in, dipping my toe in. I was trying to figure out where to hold space. So I tried a bunch of different places and things didn't really pan out that well, but my mindset wasn't there as well. I have been working the last year virtually trying to get more um, post videos every two weeks on YouTube with her yoga asanas. I was really digging deep into my private clients and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and all along the way, I've gotten more and more of my practice back. It's very, very different now. I still don't have a supraspinatus, infraspinatus, or middle or lower trapezius muscle on my left side. Um, and so it's very different. But having said that, I appreciate it more than I ever have in my life. And, um, you know, I still get stuck in my mind a little bit about the fact that I might probably will never see third series again, but that's not what the practice is about. The thing is that's so beautiful about my injuries. Um, is I can still do a lot. There's a lot I can't do, but I, there's a lot I can do. And so I've found a place of acceptance with that. I still believe that I'll get more function back. Um, 
And it was really, I had been doing a once a week class for like two months, the last two months, one of my students, and I love my students so much and grateful for them because many of them recently have been pushing me like, please, please teach again, please get back to, please offer us MISO again. And you know, it was nice because for the last couple of years with COVID, people weren't asking me to do that. You know, people were all terrified. And um, one of my students really kept pushing me, kept pushing me, kept pushing me. So I started a once a week MISO class. And it literally was my mom. My mom was has always been sick. She um she had a disease called Epidermolis bullosa, and she um it was an autoimmune disease. She caught everything you could possibly imagine. She's had breast cancer and lung cancer and open heart surgery and a stroke in 2017. And the woman was a, an incredible human being who's been through it all, and she always stood back up again. Um, and in in June of this year, she 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 passed away. Um, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Um, just now. That's... It was very recent. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm really grateful because I can't tell you the number of times my sister would call me from South Carolina through the years. I mean, I remember canceling workshops in Scotland and flying home early. I canceled stuff. I mean, Arizona, I could, I could name off 10 different trips that I either had to reschedule or leave early because she was very critically sick. And so I'd go to her and my, my dad passed away when I was really little. And I know my mom had a fear of dying by herself. Um, and so I was, I was lucky enough to be able to get to South Carolina to be with her this year. And I helped her transition. I was there with her the whole time and really grateful for that. And I, I bring this up because when I got right back, when I got back to Florida, after she passed away, a yoga student who was an old student who had been coming to these classes recently, she has a birthing center. She's a midwife. And she had been asking you for months to please come check out her space that she thought, you know, it's small, but it'd be perfect for me. And um, it was the day, the first class back after my mom passed away and I went to check out her space and I felt my mother's energy when I opened the door and the space was just so beautiful and so peaceful. And I literally, when I went to check it out, I was thinking maybe I'll teach one or two classes here. I looked at her and I said, I'm, I'm ready to start a program again. It was like, it was, it was so beautiful. Yeah. And that was, it was two weeks ago, to, uh, two weeks ago that I started the full program and I've been really, I feel home again. Um, and I love teaching this practice. So that's very quickly to catch you up on where I am now. When it comes to me physically, I do full primary every day, again, modified. So for me, with the lack of scapular control um, and humeral control on my shoulder, things like chaturanga are really hard. So I modify that. I don't do vinyasas between every side anymore. Um, but otherwise, I can do everything in the practice. And then when it comes to adjusting students, I can what I can't, so I can't lift this arm any higher than this from this plane, but I've trained my deltoid to lift up for here. Just to give you a couple of examples. I can't hold a, a bottle in my arm and extend it with this hand. Obviously I can in this one. Most of my issues are anything up high. I don't have control of my scapula and then any external rotation, any external rotation of the shoulder. I can't really do anything with real function of it, mm-hmm. but with weight stacking body mechanics, there's so much you can do. And when it comes to adjusting, all of the adjustments that I've ever done so far, I still can do because it doesn't require external yeah. rotation. It doesn't require overhead function. And I was literally telling one of my friends just two days ago that I'm so grateful that even though that has been a hard experience and I'm still working through it, it didn't, it did not take away the things I love the most. Um, and I, I want people to hear that because whether you go through something like I've been through or just any injury at all, you know, you will experience, and if if they're, whether they're on the mat or off the mat, you're going to have injuries while you do this practice. You're going to have to tiptoe the line of resting your body versus rehabbing your body. 
You're going to have to change the way you approach the practice when you're rehabbing your body. And you're going to have to find some acceptance, especially as we get older, especially if we have very traumatic experiences, that things may not be the same, but they will be better. And um, my physical therapist, the outside the box physical therapist kept saying like, you're not going to be the same. You're going to be better than you were before. Now, I would argue about that, but I think I'll be better is different, meaning I think that everybody learns from every experience that we that we have in life. And it's all about what we do with that information. It's all about what we do next. And um, I can be honest and forthright and say that I went through the very darkest night of the soul over the last couple of years. Um, but I'm still here and uh, and I have a lot left to do. And for anybody listening, I don't care how old you are. I don't care how broken you are, how sick you are, or anything that you think it could keep you from this practice nothing can keep you from this practice if you have a desire to practice. And um, going now back into teaching more regularly, I have such a greater appreciation for all of the variations that I either created or learned to teach students through the years. Um, And I have so much more of a focus. I've always been really, it's always been important to me to help teach students understand anatomy. Like, what are you doing with the body? What body parts are you moving? Why does this matter? How does it connect to the yoga practice? Things like that's always been very important to me, but even more so now, because I understand so much of the anatomy so much better now that I feel like it would be an injustice to my students to not educate them to really understand. Because like, use a perfect example, one of my students this morning, she used to ride horses and she's hunched over. She's got very, very short and tight pecs and very overstretched back muscles. A lot of people do. So what happens when that happens and you're trying to do Marichiasana, for example, if your pec is so short, a lot of people will just kind of just do what they can to reach around and they're struggling and they're struggling and they're struggling. And today I didn't let her even try to struggle. I really, I explained to her how we have to open the pec line. Once that opens, she'll have more mobility. She'll have more, more range of motion. And then she can externally rotate from her shoulder and do the bind properly, right? I'm sure I've told her this before, but today, telling her today, it, it made more sense to her. So she wasn't so gung-ho on getting bound in Marichiasana. She was more interested in opening the fascia of her pectoralis muscles so she can do it safely and naturally and not tear or rip tendons on the in the process. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, so that that's a really big thing for me. It always has been, but now even more so. And I think um, the body mechanics education that can be brought into practices like Ashtanga yoga, they're so complementary because just like with, with yoga asanas themselves, right? When my students are like, you know, I just finished that pose, you know, the one where you do the da, 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 da. And I'm like, you're not getting any new poses until you learn the names of the poses that you're doing. I mean, if you're practicing this stuff three to six days a week, let's learn it, you know? And again, maybe that's me being really rigid, but at the same time, I want them to be very accountable for what they're doing and what they're practicing and really own it. And when you own it that way, it's so empowering. So that's kind of where I am right now. I love that. And and I like the, like taking the fear out of saying the words, saying Sanskrit words, asking the questions about your physical body. Like, because I feel like in a lot of, I would imagine even more so if they're not used to that style, that like a lot of people go into yoga and they just kind of want to blend in and like guess their way through and like make mm-hmm. it like our, my intention was just to show up today, just to be present, which not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, they, you can short yourself and kind of pinch yourself off from the full like, potential of practicing by like not allowing yourself to try the thing, say the thing, take as long as it takes to actually move to the next step instead of just like, you know, getting through it. 
No, and it's a great point that you make. And I will say, you know, I I think another thing I love, you know, human personality. I love psychology. I love all of that. And I love seeing every new student that comes in. They come for different reasons. They come with a different body. They come with different experience. And everyone starts with some kind of expectation. But I know that whatever you come for, you're going to get so much more if you just kind of surrender to the practice. Um, And I will say too about my sort of style, like you can only flirt with it for so long because eventually you get tired of coming back in and being like, what was I supposed to do next? So, and that's where if, if people really get overwhelmed, I understand it. If people are like, Ashanga is like too fast for me. It gives me, it, it gives me anxiety or whatever. Then there's another style of yoga for you. There's a yen hatha or hatha practice or a kundalini practice. There's always a practice for you. But if, if there's something about this practice that intrigues you, then the, the aspect of surrender is your best friend because I know you know this too, that the magic happens when you do just show up, when you come without expectation. And I, I, this doesn't really pertain to your point, but I always, I always get riled up when people tell me, oh yeah, I did Ashtanga yoga, but I get bored doing the same thing every day. And I can see where people could understand that to be reality if they only ever did lead classes or, you know, mm-hmm. level one Ashtanga lead class or whatever you people want to call it. Um, but if they learn the purpose behind everything, then as you know, every day is so different. Your body's in a different place. Your mind is in a different place. Your energy is in a different place. And you get to actually quantify where you are in space right now in this very present moment. And to do the same sequence over and over again, you shouldn't expect any result. We're doing this practice to practice. Yeah. So that's always been really powerful to me because people do have all these own their own expectations or preconceived notions about stuff and i think that's part of the 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 magic of mysore is that if you indeed surrender and let this practice work on you then you're going to get everything you ever wanted and then some Mm -hmm. yeah and it's a discipline that i don't think everyone is aware they're signing up for, no. you know? And so that, that like want for like a new fresh pose or a new fresh playlist or a new fresh, whatever, you know, I, I remember having a student ask me one time, like, can we do a new pose? And I was like, there are no new poses. There are no new poses, but you can Google <laughs> one that makes you feel excited, I guess. I don't know, but that's like, if you're, if you're focused on like something to stimulate you, then you may have, then maybe we need to go back to the beginning. You know, maybe we've missed some of the points. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, I enjoy it all. Cause you know, we all have our own, we all have our own desires and things we want to get from this practice, but you, you hit it on the head. I think that even if they come in knowing that they need to commit to three days a week or whatever, um, I think it's when you mass, when you get through that honeymoon phase that you really understand what you need to do in order to commit yourself to this practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been, I, I remember, I remember when I was married, my ex-husband would constantly make me feel guilty about taking the time for my practice. And um, if it wasn't him, somebody or something else can always take us to distract us from the stuff that we're supposed to do. So for me, I just want to put this out there to anybody who's new to the practice. I have to do my yoga asana first thing in the morning. If not, the day takes on a life of its own and there is no time for me. And um, that, again, the the discipline part, because I teach early in the morning. And a lot of times when I had my studio, we'd have classes early morning, mid-morning and evening to accommodate everybody. Now, I can't physically do all those classes, but I think it matters most to try to do it early in the morning, because if you can get yourself taken care of first thing in the day, there's a greater chance, I think, that you're going to stay committed to doing it. And you're going to really experience the benefits of doing yoga asana first thing in the morning and have a great day because of it. 
Yeah, agreed. I feel like we could do a whole show on, well, first of all, like yoga and divorce, because I feel like all of us yoga teachers have had one or two in my case, like there's all the honeymoon analogies were like, this actually works for yoga practice and for marriage as well. Like you, yes. you have to go through hell and then recommit and then find what's not the same, but better or part ways and try a different style or whatever. But like that and motherhood, I mean, all of these things, I feel like there's a, if you, if this discipline is calling to you, then there are things you have to do because it, it's not easy. It is just not going to be easy for most of us, unless you're young and single and don't have a job that starts on time. Like it's not easy to dedicate time to practice. So if you want it, that's like the first discipline is setting those things in place to make it happen for you. And so exactly. whether that's a boundary or a carpool or whatever. But I will, you know, I think, I think too, some people maybe don't understand the value of that. I mean, I, I've seen every kind of student in the world and I will say those who don't even know why they're hungry, but they're hungry, find a way, you know what I mean? Like you just taste the magic of this practice. But I know again, that it isn't for everybody, but if you're even remotely interested in Ashtanga yoga, the Mysore way is the way to really experience it because otherwise people, you might end up saying, oh, well, Ashtanga yoga is boring. Um, and on that note, Lead classes in Ashtanga yoga have always been different than lead classes in other styles of yoga. Now, I can't speak for the other teachers out there, but the way that it's intended, as you probably know very well, um, you know, we're supposed to practice lead primary one day a week. And that's for us, A, to really learn the vinyasa count of the postures and B, for the teacher to see the sea of students all at one time and make mental notes. Oh, Jennifer's got to work more on her triangle next week. I'll make note of that. Really helping us get a better grip of where our students need help next week in Mysore. Um, and the classes that exist today in lead format, I think can be very confusing as to the purpose and intention behind the yoga. So um, I really hope that everybody listening today, if they're interested, find a Mysore style teacher around you and really experience it firsthand before you make any assumptions as to whether or not you think this is a good practice for you. Yeah, and how long would you say they, they give it a go before they decide if it's a fit for them? That's a great question. I mean, I always am a huge believer, you know, it takes 21 days to make or break a habit. I think a minimum of 21 days coming three times a week, you're going to get to really experience a little bit of what the Meister self feels like. You'll get a little bit more of the postures. So if you do, if you decide in one or two visits, you know, you've really just gotten through the sun salutations, maybe a couple standing poses. So if you give it, you know, to get through near the full standing, um, give yourself the opportunity to do it 12 to 15 times, then you can with true authenticity say, this is definitely what I want to pursue, or I'm going to keep checking. I'm going to keep mm -hmm. looking. Yeah. So how about for our locals, if they want to practice with you, how do they find you? So if, if you wanted to practice here in Orlando, you can go to olotita.com. That's O-L-O-T-I-T-A.com. I teach Monday through Friday morning, seven to eight 30 at the awakening well house. And, um, and I've got some other stuff posted online. We've got the YouTube channel. If anybody isn't local, um, if you go to YouTube slash Olotita, I post every two weeks and it is working on the asanas of the primary series. I do tutorial videos to really break down the postures, giving you lots of variations or modifications to work towards mastery. And then every couple videos, I do a practice along video. So the one I did recently was it's 40 minutes doing the full standing and modified finishing sequence. Um, and then I'm going to be in DC in August, September, October, November in St. Louis in November as well, if anybody lives in that area. And I'm working on 2023's yoga retreat. It looks like it might be Morocco. So Ooh, exciting. And I'll put all those links in the show notes too. So okay. people can click and, and find you there. Okay. So last thing, I mean, first, 
second to last thing. I just can't thank you enough for this conversation. It's been so thank you. So valuable. And and you know, everybody who comes to the show so far, anyways, has been really authentic and and vulnerable. But I just feel like you shared a lot of things that you didn't have to share with us. And I I really appreciate it because you and I don't know who exactly will listen to this or when they will listen to this. It someone could find it 10 years from now and had it had to hear the story that you shared and they might need it. I have this sense that someone will need this story at some time or place that might not even be close to us. But if you didn't opt in to have this conversation with me today, they wouldn't have it. So I really appreciate that. And, oh, my pleasure. And my last question for you is, what advice would you give to a new teacher? Let's say they just graduated from a teacher training of whatever style, but they're new. What advice do you have for a new yoga teacher trainer? I've got a good a good bit of advice. So when you first graduate, a lot of a lot of people naturally want to teach as many classes as they can. You want to get as much experience as you can. You maybe want to make money to pay off the teacher training you just paid for. Um, and just you're you're so excited about it. And the the one warning I have for every yoga teacher is do not ever take on too many yoga classes or too much teaching that it, your own personal practice suffers. And I've seen it so many times where people fall away from their own asana practice because they've got the class and they've got the private and they've got the da, 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 da. and before you know it you're burnt out because you're teaching way too much you don't have time for your personal practice and maybe you don't even remember what you were doing it for so the best advice i have is start really small you know start with just a few classes that fit perfectly in your life that fit in with your regular job if you still have one that fit in with your daily asana practice nurture your practice every step of the way because that is your whole well that's that's the well you give from and you'll see that over time let's say that you don't love those first two classes but you really love the third one you teach don't think of adding five more instead wait for that next one to present itself that's perfect and then you can let go of one of those classes you know really monitor your energy monitor your time and i know that people that like i said when you first get out of an apprenticeship or teacher training program you know you want to dive deep in do that but try to be mindful of the 24 hours we all have in one day and be mindful of your energy level and i also would love to say no matter what style of yoga you teach when you first get started you're gonna feel like a green thumb because you are um but students often don't know that. And what I mean by that is don't ever walk into a class and feel like, oh, well, these people have been practicing with so-and-so teacher forever. And so they're going to judge me or I'm not going to do a good job. That is the furthest thing from the truth. Bring your authentic self into the room, teach from your heart, teach based on what you know, do your very best. And I promise your students are going to love it. I mean, I remember when I, my, one of my last apprenticeship programs, I had one of my students, you know, teach a leg class and she forgot some of the, you know, Sanskrit count. She was mortified after practice. I was like, not a single student in the room even noticed, even noticed. So have the faith and confidence in yourself that from the first class to the 150,000th class that you teach, you are doing good service in this world and you're helping other people learn how to take better care of their health and wellness through yoga. And that is a special gift. Oh, that's perfect. I love it. That's exactly what I wanted this whole project to be about because, you know, we can get so caught up in our own journeys naturally, but it's like, we got into this because we wanted to serve. It is a service. So it's an art and a science and a skill set. but it, uh, at the end of the day, it's a service. And so if you yeah. keep the students and clients at the forefront of why the heck are we doing this? It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. They'll probably be safe and that's all we really need. And they're going to get what they need from the day. So Absolutely. I love that. 
Thank you, Krista, so much. I really enjoyed this and I know our listeners are going to love it so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, my dear. You too. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this helpful or at least that it made you smile. If so, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it with somebody else. You can do so by sharing a screenshot of this podcast to your Instagram stories and then tag me at Body Mind Spirit Service. You can also visit our website. The link is in the bio. It's bodymindspiritservice.com. And in there, you're going to find a free community group where you can join and chime in with podcast questions or topic requests, as well as network with other people in your field. The website's also going to give you options to opt in for the blog updates and the email list so you can stay in the loop for trainings and other exciting things there. And if you're more into Facebook, we have a free community group there as well. So again, thank you so much for sharing your time with me and I hope to hear from you soon. You can send me a DM, say hi, let me hear from you. Let me hear how I can be of service to you so that you can be of service to others. May you be happy. May you be well. May you be safe, peaceful, and at ease. And I will see you again soon.